0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. What we believe guides our behavior, but what if our beliefs aren't sound? What behavior might that produce, and with what consequences? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Salt and Light, God's Vision for the Church, with this sermon entitled The Doctrine of the Church, which covers Titus chapter 2. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: It has been said... Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wanting to justify ourselves, we ask, and who was my neighbor? It has been said, love one another with brotherly affection, Wanting to liberate ourselves, we ask, am I my brother's keeper? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? To call someone as such is to call them family. Christ is our brother with God as our father. We are of his house and are called by his name. Because of Christ, you are my brother. Because of Christ, you are my sister. Jesus unites what was once separated. Jesus welcomes home those who have been alienated. Jesus is our peace and has broken down the wall of hostility. By the cross, we are one family. He has given us a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are salt and light.
2: Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit that indwells each person that has believed upon you, O Jesus. Would you, Holy Spirit, be here in power this morning, filling this room, but filling us as well. O Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you pierce us with your word that is sharper than any double-edged sword, as the scriptures say? Lord, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? But most of all, Lord, we just want to say that we are here to meet with you. So would you do that? Would you meet with us? And would you shape us and change us for your glory? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you a picture of someone that... I guess my, my um, assumption is you're not going to know who this is. This is a guy named Hiru Anada. You may have heard of him. Maybe you know his story, but didn't know who he was or what he looked like. Uh, as you can tell, this is an old picture. This is a, a picture from World War II. Hiru was a, uh, an, a soldier, a, a Japanese soldier in World War II. I want to tell you quickly uh, why his story is famous. Uh, Hiru did not get deployed by the Japanese military into the war until late 1944, December of 1944. You might remember that World War II ended in August of 1945. So he began to serve at the tail end of, of the war. So he was deployed in December from Japan to the Philippines And he was given specific instructions. He was to be a bit of a covert operative uh, that would work with a team of others that would um, work with guerrilla warfare in the jungle, coming out only to uh, get food and to have skirmishes with the allied forces. Uh, It's interesting. The last thing that Hiru Anada was the last command that he was given was this by his commanding officer. He said, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens will come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, then live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. That was the last thing, the last uh, order that he was given from his commanding officer. He gets to the Philippines and he begins to serve there, but it was in a matter of only a couple of months that the Allied forces took over the Philippines. As this happened, Hiru went with three other soldiers and they went into the jungle to survive and to begin to wage war in the way that they were given. Now here's where the story takes an interesting twist. The war ends in August of 1945, but Hiru and these three other soldiers who were with them didn't know that. And so even after the war was over, they continued to wage guerrilla-style warfare in the jungles of the Philippines. They would come out from time to time to uh, take food from local citizens, but even shoot at and have skirmishes with local citizens, believing that it was a tactic of the allied forces, of the enemy, to dress in citizen clothing, in civilian clothing. So as they began to wreak more havoc, as they began to shoot at more people and even kill some people and livestock and so forth, they said, we got to do something about this. So they began looking for them, but these soldiers were so well-trained in covert operations, they could never find them. So they thought, we've got to do something. So the first thing they tried is they flew a plane over the jungles of where they thought they were. And they dropped leaflets that said, the war's over. You can come out now. But they began to believe, yet again, this was a tactic of the enemy. That the allied forces, this is part of their propaganda. The war's not over. If the war were over, our commanding officers would have come and gotten us, just like they said. So their next thing they tried is they dropped newspapers from Japan that stated the war is over in their language from their home papers. And that didn't work either. Again, tactic of the enemy, propaganda. So then they went a step further. They dropped photographs and letters from their family members. This one caused them to think a little bit more, but eventually they determined that this too was a tactic of the enemy that either their family members had been captured and were being forced to do this, or this was forged. Their next thing to try was they brought in um, delegates from Japan to go throughout the jungles with loudspeakers begging them, please stop, the war is over. They heard these loudspeakers, but they didn't surrender. So years go by, and they continue to fight a war that's over. Five years, and then 10 years, and then 20 years. Over the course of this time, uh, these four men began to dwindle. Two of the men were killed in skirmishes that they thought were with the enemy in civilian clothing, clothing, but were actually locals who were able to shoot and kill two of them. Another one in the middle of the night, tired and weary and ready to go home, finally snuck away and surrendered but not Hiro. Heru. Heru stayed devoted to the task, to the mission. 29 years later, on March 10th, 1975, at the age of 52, he had been deployed in his 20s. He finally surrenders and comes out of the jungle. The way they were finally able to get him to surrender was they were able to eventually locate that commanding officer who had given him that final command. He had long been retired and was working in a bookstore in Japan. And they fly him down to the Philippines and they eventually locate where Haru is hiding out and they take this commanding officer and and he says, it's over. You can come out. He finally surrenders after 29 years. He had killed 30 civilians. He had injured over 100 more. A fascinating story that it's easy to look at and go, how could you be so foolish? And he even said that upon coming out. He said, what have I done with all these years wasted? But I tell you this. He had gotten a command and he was devoted to it. And here's the reason I tell you the story. I tell you the story because there's something on display here with his story that's important to learn from. And that's this. What we believe based on what we are taught dictates how we live. What we believe based on what we are taught dictates how we live. See, Hiro had been taught that under no circumstances would Japan ever surrender. Ever. That if the war ends, it will only be because Japan has won. And he believed that with all of his heart. He believed that the only way that the war would ever end was if his very own commanding officer came and told him, because that's what his commanding officer had said. It may take three years, it may take five years, but until we come get you, do not surrender. He believed that if they hadn't come, the war must still be going. So, foolish, yeah. However, he was living out what's true of all of our natures, just not lived out in such an extreme way. What we believe, based on what we are taught, dictates how we live. Belief fuels action. So, this is the question we have to ask as the church What do we believe? And how should that cause us to live? Even more specifically, what do we believe based on what we are taught in the Word of God that then fuels how we live? It's all tied together. This is exactly exactly what Paul is wanting Titus to understand as he begins what we know as chapter 2, verse 1. If you'll remember, we started last week. It was week two of our series in Salt and Light. We spent week one in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount talking about those verses, those famous verses that you, O church, you disciples of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And then we spent some time last week saying, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend four weeks in the book of Titus to begin to dive into what is God's vision for the church because the book of Titus is written by the apostle Paul to a young pastor pastor who he is charged to establish churches on the island of Crete, which was an incredibly pagan, dark, spiritually dark island in that day and time. And we saw last week that if if he's going to leave someone in charge, if if Paul is going to leave someone in charge to begin to establish churches from city to city, the exact language is he said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. They had gone there on a missionary journey. They had shared their faith. People had come to Christ, but then they moved on to the next spot without establishing the churches. And so Paul sending Titus, go back, establish the churches. What's the most important, most critical first step in establishing those churches? Appoint godly leaders. That's what we talked about last week. Appoint godly leaders, and this is what should be true of them. And he lays out very clearly in chapter one, this is what's true of those who are to be the godly leaders of the church. Establish these men in each of these cities. Chapter one, though, ends the last several verses with him saying, now look, there's a a whole lot of unsound doctrine that's coming into the life of the church there in Crete. A lot of unsound doctrine, a lot of things that are being taught in the churches that shouldn't be. It's primarily through Jewish people, Judaizers, who are coming into the life of the church saying, okay, fine, believe in Jesus if that's what you want to do, but you still have to be circumcised. You still have to observe Jewish law and tradition and holidays and so forth. And so there's these, these, uh, this law that's being put upon the life of believers that was never intended to be there through the freedom and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says to them at the end of chapter one. He says, Titus, those people are dangerous, He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In other words, their works deny what they say they believe. Their lives deny what they say they believe. He says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And he tells him, he says, rebuke them sharply and get them out of the church. Strong words from the apostle Paul about unsound doctrine. So where we're picking up today is chapter two, verse one, where he says, but to you, Titus, but to you as for you, verse one, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. What does that mean? What is sound doctrine? Let's break it down real quickly here. Uh, Take those two words, examine what they mean. Those two words in the original language is pretty simple, but it maybe gives us a little more insight. Uh, A a word that is probably, in my opinion, perhaps a little better word to say than sound is healthy. We're talking about healthy doctrine. uh, To be well, to be uncorrupt. So this is doctrine that is uncorrupt, healthy Sound. What is doctrine? Doctrine is simply uh, teaching or instruction. You could say that doctrine is the sum of the teachings that cause us to believe what we believe. So it's the teaching that is healthy that then causes us to believe, which then dictates how we live out of our belief. One good definition I came across was it's teaching from God about God that then directs us to glorify God. So it's from him, his word, and then it's about him so that we may glorify him. That's sound doctrine. And so Paul is entrusting Titus. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's a nature, there's a part of what he's saying there that insinuates as well to protect to protect sound doctrine, protect healthy teaching. This is what every pastor in the church of Jesus Christ is entrusted with, every single one of us. And we take that incredibly seriously here. Uh, Just a quick little caveat, just so that you know and have an understanding a little bit of how we even work, not only within this church, but even within our denomination. So I, I think I mentioned last week that Perimeter Church is a part of a denomination that's called the Presbyterian Church in America, often called the PCA. And the PCA is, is governed in a way to where you have elders, as I explained last week, you have elders who lead the church. So I, uh, even as the, as the lead pastor and lead teacher, um, I take the vision that I feel God has given me for the church, but it's not just me. I take it to uh, a group of nine elders that I report to that I meet with on a monthly basis, they ask me hard questions, they ask me accountability questions. If there were ever to be anything that I'm teaching or any of our teaching pastors are teaching that would be seen or understood or applied in a way that could be in the realm of unsound doctrine, they will come uh, to me with that and hold me accountable. But there's a second layer to the governing structure of the PCA that's really important for you to understand. And that's this. Uh, any teaching pastor in the PCA, which this includes me, we are not members of Perimeter Church. We're not members of the local church. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because we're members of what's called the Presbytery. And the Presbytery is a governing body that consists of a group of churches in a regional area that is held accountable by that regional body, governing body as well. So in other words, if God forbid, there ever be a situation where elders at the local church level are somehow not uh, making good on their responsibility to, to protect sound doctrine, to hold a pastor who's teaching unsound doctrine accountable. If for some reason that were to happen, you have a second layer of accountability, of authority, the presbytery, who ultimately holds me and any teaching pastor accountable. I tell you that just to say this. You can be... Uh, you can be confident that what comes from this pulpit, although not perfect because they come from imperfect lips, we are devoted as best as we can through the power of the Holy Spirit within us to be devoted to sound doctrine. To take this verse, Titus 2.1, very seriously. To understand what we are holding in our hands when we hold the scriptures and to understand the incredible responsibility it is to preach and to teach those scriptures in a way that accords with sound teaching. So Paul tells Timothy teach what accord or Titus teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is it? What is sound doctrine? What do we believe? Let me run through a list real quick. I'm going to move through this very Quickly, uh, don't worry, don't panic. Uh, if you like, if you want to jot all this down, I'd, I'd say don't even try right now. I'm going to move it through it too quickly. But this is posted on perimeter.org forward slash Norris. Little website we have that I can just put things on there, uh, resources, different things, and then sometimes on Sunday mornings when I just want to hit something quickly, say, hey, if you want to go back to this, it'll be posted there. I want to give you a list of what do we believe at the, at the base level. This is not an exhaustive list. But it's the fundamentals. It's what makes us a church. It's what makes us Christians. We believe this sound doctrine. So here it is. Here's what we believe. We believe in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of scripture. We believe in the majesty and sovereignty of God. We believe God created the universe out of nothing. We believe humanity was created by God as a part of that creation process. We believe in the fall of mankind, meaning the fall of mankind into sin, that uh, all mankind, all man and woman are, are born into sin because of the sin nature we inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We believe in God's gracious plan of salvation. We believe that this salvation is entirely of grace, and not the merit of mankind. We believe God applies the salvation earned by Christ to us through the Holy Spirit. And we believe that Christ will come again. Again, there's a lot. I mean, each one of those can be a sermon in and of itself. But I wanted a quick overview to say, this is the beginnings of, this is the foundation of what the Bible would say is sound doctrine, healthy doctrine teaching. So when we read Titus 2.1, we have a better understanding of what Paul's getting at. He's saying, Titus, be devoted to those core truths of the scriptures. Now, why is this so important? Why is sound doctrine so very important? Let me give you two reasons here. First is this, because the nature of the human heart is to reject sound doctrine. The nature of the human heart is to reject sound doctrine. Paul wrote another letter to another young pastor named Timothy. The book right before Titus is 2 Timothy. And in that letter, he says this to Timothy He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My goodness, are we not seeing that on display in the church today where we are calling things that are very unsound sound because they sound better to our ears This is nothing new. The church has struggled with this throughout the ages, but it is certainly on display in the modern church as well. And part of it becomes, uh, part of it comes about because we are a people who naturally tend to fill our minds and our hearts with all kinds of teaching, all kinds of doctrine that might be somewhat related to Christianity, but is not the scripture's. It's not straight from the word. It's from those who are not even trained to uh, teach the word, if you will, who are then expounding upon what might be true in the Bible and making emphatic doctrinal statements from it that we then take hook, line, and sinker and say, oh yes, that must be true. But when we begin to do uh, the, the little harder work of weighing what we might be getting from that source with the scriptures themselves, we begin to say, oh, my goodness, what I am determining is sound doctrine is actually far out of balance with what the scriptures would say is sound doctrine because it's it's natural to us. We have to recognize within us. We have to recognize within every single one of us that we are bent towards satisfying our itching ears and not bent towards the scriptures. That's what's true of us. So we have to fight the good fight to stay devoted to sound doctrine, sometimes it's, you see it in denominations over the history of the church that have allowed different voices to come into the life of the church that have caused the scriptures to be twisted in such a way to where now those denominations are dead set on things that aren't biblical. But you see it in all kinds of ways in the lives of individual church members and even entire churches that have moved away from sound doctrine. By God's grace, We know that we're not immune and we know that it is by him and by him alone who leads us by the power of his Holy Spirit through the power of his word that we long to be a church unapologetically devoted to sound doctrine. The second reason why this is so important is because the way we live has everything to do with sound doctrine. This is the opening illustration I gave you with Haru and just how he represents all of us in some ways to where what we believe based on what we are taught dictates how we live. So belief and living are tied together in a profound way. Notice where Paul goes immediately after stating to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The very next thing out of his mouth is he begins to go into teaching on what does a godly life look like as a result of those who believe sound doctrine. In verses 2 through 10, Paul gives instruction on how we are to live in family in our family and individual lives. And he begins to tease this out as he gives instructions to five different types groups of people. He first speaks to older men. Then he speaks to older women. Then he speaks to younger women. Then he speaks to younger men. And then he speaks to slaves. To servants of that day. And so I don't want you to miss the connection. He says, but for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now this is what that looks like. For a people who believe it, this is what their lives should look like. In other words, This is how the church should look in the way that we live our lives as a result of sound doctrine and our beliefs. So let me walk through, I'm not gonna read verses two through 10, but you're gonna get a really good understanding of what he says based on me walking through the lists that he gives. So he starts with older men in verse two, and he tells older men to be sober-minded. That means to be temperate, to be rational, to think through things clearly, to not be impulsive, to not draw quick conclusions, to be thorough. And then also, there's an implication here that the reason the word sober is in there is to be men who have either completely abstained from alcohol or are partaking in alcohol at a very immoderate use of it. Dignified. This is similar, it's not the same Greek word, but it's a similar word that was used last week when Paul told Titus that godly men are to be above reproach. This is getting at that same concept that these are to be men who are not without blemish, but who are without blame, who are dignified, men of character, self-controlled. This is the ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, to curb sinful impulses to take that impulse, that, that immediate urge that we have to respond with this word, or this anger, or this whatever, or to run to that website, or whatever it may be, and to be able through the power of the Holy Spirit within godly older men to say no. But you'll notice as we work through these lists, Paul hits this with each age group. The ability to be godly has a, a, a whole lot to do with the ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to reject sinful impulses. He says, older men are to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness or perseverance. Older women, verse three, he says, they are to be reverent in behavior. This is, literally means to be befitting to God. He says, to they are to not be slanderers. This is an interesting word in the original language. It literally translates malicious gossips. To not be malicious gossips. This word, it's one word in the, in the Greek, and it's used 38 times in the New Testament. 38 times. 35 of those 38 times is translated devil. I make a joke here. Please don't email me, but don't be devil women. That's kind of what it's saying. Like don't, here's what he's saying. He's saying Don't use your tongue in such a way that it mimics the devil more than it mimics your Lord. That it would slander in such a way to bring down the reputation of another. To not be slanderers. To not be slaves to much wine. Again, very similar to what he instructed the older men. To teach what is good and to train the young women, literally meaning to encourage and disciple young women, that that older women, likewise with older men, what is their responsibility in the church? The primary responsibility is to make disciples of younger men and younger women, to pour into them, to encourage them, to disciple them is one of the huge responsibilities of the older men and women in the church. He then addresses young women, verses 4 and 5. He tells young women to love their husbands and children. He tells them, again, to be self-controlled, to be able to, uh, to squash, if you will, sinful impulses through the power of the Spirit, to be pure, literally meaning to be chaste or to be modest. And here's one that causes your eyebrows to raise. He says, work from home, that they are to be working from home now, let me share with you what I, in my opinion, what this means. We have examples within, within the uh, the scriptures, within the New Testament, of women working who are a part of the church. So I don't necessarily think that there's a hard. Impl- uh, 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 just like um, translation here, interpretation here, that says women are not allowed to work in the kingdom of God. What I think this is getting at is when you weigh it with the rest of, of the teaching of the New Testament, what we see pretty clearly is that God has laid out specific design and role for man and woman, that man is to lead the household and woman is to put in order the household as it pertains to the life of the home with the children and so forth. So I, in my opinion, certainly could be wrong. I don't see this as a verse that is saying women are not allowed to work, but it's talking about the roles that God has given men and women in a godly home. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Because what he says is he says, uh, for young women to be kind, I don't think I need to define the word kind, but just for the sake of it, this means be good, be pleasant, be agreeable, be happy, be joyful. And then he says, lastly, another one that makes, that makes us go, hmm, what does that mean? He says, be submissive to your husband. This is teaching that also comes out of Ephesians 5, the passage that is, you probably heard it, almost every Christian wedding. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands and respect them. Let me give a quick explanation as to what this means. That word submit is a word that in this current culture causes us to gulp, but it's actually a really good thing biblically and it's not what the culture tries to make it to be. Let me explain where this comes from. Genesis chapter two, when God creates man and woman, incredibly important passage to understanding the teaching of the rest of the Bible about men and women. He makes man, and after bringing all of the created beings, all of the animals and whatnot to man to name them, he says, there is not a helper, suit, a helper suited for this man. And so he creates Eve, he creates woman. So in other words, the woman is considered the azer, that's the Hebrew word, is considered the azer to the man, the helper to the man. Now we hear that and we go, oh, that's inferior, right? Well, listen to this. That word, azer, helper, is used most often in the Old Testament in reference to God, not to woman. That's significant because here's what that means. It means if God is going to say that he is the helper, he is the helper of Israel, of his people, then it must not, it cannot be inferiority. Would we say God is inferior to man if he's the helper of man? Absolutely not. We'd say God is majestic and sovereign over man. So it can't be a a title of inferiority. It actually is a beautiful title of complementarian, beautiful togetherness of how God created man and created woman. If you don't remember anything, remember this. Scriptures teach us, sound doctrine teaches us that God created man and woman equal in purpose and value but distinct in design and in role. Equal in purpose and value, but distinct in design and role. And that's a very good thing. And you know why he did it? Because remember what he said? He said, I have created man in my image, male and female, I have created them. Part of being created in God's image is reflecting the Trinity. What's true of the Trinity? You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Equal in power, in substance, and in glory, but distinct in role. You have God the Father who spoke creation into being, God the Father who oversees all of salvation, who ordained it, but you have God the Son submitting to God the Father. You have God the Son who is the hands, if you will, of creation, according to John 1 and Colossians 1 and who is also the executor, if you will, the one who executes on our salvation. Then you have God, the Holy Spirit, equal in power and substance and glory, but what's his role? His role is to submit, so to speak, to the son, and everything he does is to glorify the son and to be what? The helper. The helper. To submit to your husband means to to submit to good godly leadership and in so doing mimic, mirror the Godhead. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. He tells younger men to be self-controlled, to be of sound mind. Again, curb those sinful impulses by the power of the spirit. And then he looks at Titus and he says, Titus, you're a younger man So here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to be the model. So he tells Titus, he says, Titus, you model good works. And you, Titus, you show integrity, dignity, and sound speech in everything that you do. Sound doctrine, there it is again. And then he speaks to slaves. Now remember, Slaves in that day and time, very different from chattel slavery that we would know that existed in America for quite some time, this would often be a a bond servant, as they would be termed, who had chosen to be a part, to be a servant in this family at a certain level and was often treated as a family member. Now, it wasn't ideal. I'm not making, I'm not trying to make that sound as though this were how they would desire life to be, but however, very different type of servanthood than what we might assume The, the probably the best way to hear his instructions to these servants is to think of it from the context of what he might be instructing us today with as an employee. How do you work? How do you respond to your boss, to your supervisor, so forth? So he says this, be submissive to your masters, be well-pleasing, do not be argumentative, do not pilfer, which means to steal or embezzle and to show And everything, show good faith. Now, if I ended the sermon right there, if I said, okay, so here you have it. Be a people devoted to sound doctrine and go be godly. You saw the list. You know what's required of you. You know what should be expected of those who are in the faith, devoted to sound doctrine, so go do it. I would be setting you up for failure. And if Paul were with me, he'd say, how dare you? You didn't teach the whole text because look what Paul says next. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, listen, who are zealous for good works. It's a major theme of where we're going for the next two weeks that Paul continues to hammer. Godliness and good works. Godliness and good works. But did you, did you catch where he says the fuel for that comes from? Verse 11, listen to it again. For the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Listen, verse 12, training us. What's training us? Grace. Grace is training us. What is grace? Grace is undeserved merit. How does that train us? Here's how it looks. Every single day, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're waking up and you're going before the throne of grace, as Hebrews calls it, and you're going before this God and you are saying, oh God, I deserve nothing but your wrath. I deserve nothing but the consequences of my sin. But you, through the finished work of Jesus, have poured out on me grace upon grace upon grace, which means that you have seen me now as a child of God, not a sinner separated from you. I'm united to you. I'm in you. I'm righteous in Christ and I'm fully and totally accepted in you. Not based on anything I have done, but based on the work of Jesus that is applied to me by grace and by grace alone. And when I consider the grace of the gospel, it trains me in godliness It trains me to renounce ungodliness of my former life and to walk in the newness of life that I have now only and purely and distinctly because of the grace of God. So we celebrate this grace, not only because it saved us, but we celebrate this grace because it's what transforms us. It's what changes us. It's what makes us new and trains us for righteousness, for godliness, to be able to actually live out what we walk through in those lists. Otherwise, it just feels like obligation and duty, and we burn out on religious performance rather than on the grace that leads to delighting in what delights God. One time I went to mow my grass. I had left the gas in the lawnmower over the winter because I didn't know, I'm an idiot, The gas had gone bad over the course of the winter, so I go for the first mow of the spring, and I crank it. It takes me forever to get cranked. Once I finally do, there's smoke going everywhere. It's sputtering like crazy, but I'm low on time. I've got to get this done, and so I push, and I push, and it dies, and I wait. I crank it again. I get one or two more rows, and then it dies, and I crank, and each time, it, it dies for longer. It would have been so much better for me to go and get good new gas. But what I ended up doing was this, because I was so determined to finish the job with bad fuel, I ruined the motor. I think that's a great parallel for how many of us have thought church to be, Christianity to be. The fuel that we're putting in the tanks of our heart is do better, be better, try harder, be good, get it together, be more like that list. And what happens over time is we sputter because we're not giving ourselves to the grace of Jesus Christ that transforms. We're giving ourselves to religious performance. And we sputter and we sputter and we sputter and we burn out. We have to put grace in the tank because it's what changes us. Here's the major takeaway. Walk home with this. Sound doctrine fueled by the grace of God produces an increasingly godly life in a godless world. What's listed in this chapter, in Titus chapter two, gives feet to Matthew chapter five, the verses that we talked about with salt and light. What does it look like to be salt and light? It looks like being a people seasoned with salt, shining the the light of, of Jesus, fueled by the grace of God, Living out good works for the glory of God. Listen, don't miss this. Godliness is so needed in the world today. So needed not self-righteous religiosity that says I'm better than you, but true, humble, real, grace-fueled godliness is so needed. It's needed for two reasons. One, it's needed for the purification of the church that has become way too comfortable with religious duty and not comfortable enough with gracious delight towards godliness. But let me tell you something. The crazy, wild world out there right now It needs the church to take a stand, but listen to me. There's a narrative out there that says the church, this is the time for the church to stand. But it's not the way that you think. What a lost and dying world needs is a church that will stand on the sure ground of grace-fueled godliness who will move into a lost and dying world relationship by relationship, being salt and light with a godly, attractive, beautiful salt and light of Jesus. That's where the church stands. If you want to stand, you stand on that. You be the salt with me, with us together, the salt and the light of Jesus. Father, would you make us that? Would you make us a people who are indeed salt and light, and in so being, oh God, would you make us a people who are becoming more and more a people devoted to sound doctrine that results in godly lives? Oh God, we need you. We need you to transform our own hearts And Lord, as you do that by your grace, we we ask that you would transform the hearts of those around us. Would you come and would you come in power to do what only you can do for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand one last time and let's sing to our great God.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast.